Next Chapter Podcasts. On November 9th, 1997, one of the most dramatic and unexpected events ever in the history of live television occurred. And if you ask 10 people on the street what the Montreal Screwjob is, chances are they'll either have no clue what you're talking about or possibly mistake it for a fancy cocktail or complicated sex move. But if you ask 10 self-admitted professional wrestling fans, all 10 will not only know exactly what it is, there's a good chance that you'll get 10 different explanations of what really happened. The reason for this? In the world of professional wrestling, much like the world of professional magic, politics, or even religion, you know there's a trick being performed. Yet, unless you're one of the ones playing the trick, you have no idea how it's being done. So what is the Montreal Screwjob? Well, to put it precisely, the Montreal Screwjob was the first time in the history of professional wrestling that the audience wasn't trying to figure out what the trick was. Instead, they were trying to figure out if what they were seeing was a trick at all. As far as viewers could tell, a few things definitely happened that fateful night in Quebec over 25 years ago. Two titans of wrestling at the height of their fame walked into the ring to the roars of thousands of fans. A brutal championship bout fueled by real-life animosity played out in all of its sweaty glory. And a title was stripped from a man in skin-tight, hot pink pants with skulls on them by an enemy who looked a hell of a lot like him, only slightly greasier. But behind the scenes, egos were at play, corporate competition was firing, and the line between what is truth and what is fiction became even blurrier than normal in a world where things both are and are not scripted. And so, one of the most debated and speculated upon moments in professional wrestling history still leaves people to this day wondering who was in on what and what even really happened. Disgruntled co-workers, a scheming boss, spandex and steel chairs. I'm Bridget Todd and this is Beef. So let's start with what we know. Professional wrestling is a form of entertainment that is part magic show, part soap opera, part ballet, and is performed by stuntmen who are choreographing their fake fights as they go. Most storylines are week-long sagas of two or more giant men and women feuding with each other for various reasons, usually involving treachery, adultery, competition, and sometimes the occult. And these storylines are resolved during what's known as a pay-per-view. A pay-per-view is a wrestling event where the audience needs to pay to see these weeks of bad blood between the wrestlers get settled in a violent matchup. And these are major events, with attendees numbering in the tens of thousands in person and sometimes even over a million viewers at home. One of the wrestlers has to either pin his opponent or make them quit because they are in such excruciating pain that they can no longer compete, known as tapping out. Also, occasionally, Winning means burying your opponent alive in a coffin. Whether it's watching the designated losers, known as jobbers, get slammed to the mat week after week in the regularly recurring shows, or enjoying the sheer chaos of a steel cage match, Sharon Mazur says there's something truly special about wrestling. She's a professor of theater and performance studies at Auckland University of Technology and the author of the book Professional Wrestling, Sport and Spectacle. There's still nothing more breathtaking 
than watching someone leap off the top rope and then into another man's arms and then turn around and end up on the platform in a certain way and then have that move. The the sheer energy of that, the sheer athleticism of that is really extraordinary. So, I, I mean, I wouldn't call it artistic. I would call it aesthetic. There is an aesthetics to wrestling. And some of that is in the camp aspect, the drag aspect, the tarted up aspect of the costumes, the overblownness of the challenges and the way in which they still cut their promos in this really tacky acting way. There's a great pleasure in the bad acting. But there's also at its at its heart... And this goes back to the Gorgeous George years. You can see this in Gorgeous George. You can see this in Ricky Starr. When they drop all the bullshit and they wrestled and they do so in this way that isn't fully choreographed. It's practiced, but it's not choreographed. And so there's always the element of improvisation, that of discovery in that moment where they do something exceptionally well that makes that is there's a kind of purity in it that moment of wrestling is what you wait for that moment where somebody flies or somebody just shifts moves this way and then that and you can see the body moving in time and space in a way that isn't predictable necessarily but is entirely in the moment and energized who wouldn't cheer that who wouldn't want that The two biggest stars in the biggest wrestling company in the world, the World Wrestling Federation, were Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. And on November 9th, 1997, they were set to wrestle one final time and end what had been one of the longest and most legitimately acrimonious feuds in the history of wrestling. Now, there's a lot of slang in professional wrestling, but for our purposes, two really important terms to know are shoot and work. A shoot is when something real or unplanned occurs. Often, the audience itself knows so little as to the inner workings of the highly secretive, almost carny-like business that they themselves don't even know they're witnessing a shoot as it occurs. A work is the vast majority of wrestling, professional athletes pretending to hate and hurt one another for the entertainment of the audience. So what did the audience know about Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels going into their match at the pay-per-view titled Survivor Series? From a storyline perspective, Bret the Hitman Hart was the reigning world heavyweight champion. Bret Hart was known as the excellence of execution because he was the first professional wrestler to choreograph his matches to play out like real fights. Everything he did in the ring was so incredibly crisp and, well, well executed. Hart was the quiet, stoic heir to Canadian wrestling royalty. His father, Stu Hart, ran the toughest professional wrestling academy in the country out of his basement, called The Dungeon, where he put aspiring professional wrestlers through what can most accurately be described as hell. And on this night, he was to wrestle his final match in front of a hometown crowd. More on that later. His opponent, Shawn Michaels, known as the Heartbreak Kid, was a brash, arrogant, and equally talented wrestler from Texas. Despite both rocking luxuriously long hair and awkwardly similar outfits featuring leather jackets and garishly decorated tights, the two men could not have been any more different, both as characters on a television show and in real life. To Hart, 
Michaels was everything he despised. Selfish, crass, entitled, and worst of all, possibly the more skilled of the two. What they shared in common, though, was that they were both performers who revolutionized how these fake fights in a ring played out. Keith Elliott Greenberg is a writer and television producer who's authored several books about wrestling, including the third and fourth editions of the official WWE Encyclopedia of Sports Entertainment, and most recently, Follow the Buzzards, Pro Wrestling in the Age of COVID-19. He says the heart of the dispute was a fundamental difference in the two men's personalities. I think Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, although they grew up in different parts of North America, idolized the same types of professional wrestlers, performers who were technical marvels, who could execute moves in the ring that you normally wouldn't see and could actually elevate the industry to a place that where fans now couldn't go back to what they'd seen before. The difference between Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, besides professional jealousy, and I think there probably was a bit of that on both sides, and you know some of that is healthy, it turned on healthy. I think they represented different things at that time. Bret Hitman Hart was marketed as a Canadian hero, and I do think that Bret Hart viewed himself as a role model of sorts, and he took everything he did in the ring very seriously. But at the time, Sean was a brash young man who partied a lot, and that was his character, and that was his lifestyle. And he was known as a backstage politician. Uh, Brett was too, but Sean was uh, known as a guy who would scheme a bit more to get what he wanted. And like, for instance, if he didn't want to lose a title, supposedly he would say that he had an injury. And this enabled him to avoid losing a championship. Bret Hart, on the other hand, although he would argue for a storyline to go to his liking, by and large, if he had to lose a match, he would go along with it. The thing was that these two men were so competitive with one another, they reached a stalemate and they really didn't, didn't want to lose to each other for real. Both men were more obsessed with their craft and making these fights seem more real than any wrestler to come before them. And just like their characters, both men, in real life, hated each other's guts. Why did these two men, so similar in talent and equally transformational to the business of professional wrestling, have so much heat, the wrestling world's term for real-life animosity? Well, if you're following along so far, let me throw another wrestling colloquialism at you. They're going into business for themselves. That means when someone does something off script or out of character while on camera. One of the oldest traditions in wrestling, predating Hart and Michaels, is a means of building a feud between two characters, the famous backstage interviews known as promos. This is where a wrestler would speak to one of the pretend journalists covering the pretend sport and pretend to speak ill of their opponent. The most famous of these backstage promos were the comically large Hulk Hogan yelling at the comically small and bald Gene Okerlund. I'm just worried about where we're going from here. Is it this stratosphere, man? Is it the ionosphere? The, the insults were usually generic, 
they referred to the opponent's perceived weakness, lack of wrestling skill, and, because it was 1980s America, often their lack of American nationality, which back then automatically made someone a villain. Everybody know Russia and Iran number one. That's because we have a lot of jealousy in this country. But look at me. Look at me, cameraman. Zoom. These promos were always in character and never referred to any real-life gossip. Sean and Brett changed that forever. During one of their feuds, in a backstage promo, Michaels made a comment insinuating that Hart couldn't last more than 10 minutes during intercourse, despite having seen some sunny days. Despite the vagueness of that comment, Hart knew, as did some of the more informed viewers, that this was a reference to Brett's real-life friendship with the backstage WWF beauty, Sonny Sitch. The implication of something more than a friendship between Hart and Sonny crossed many lines especially since Hart was married already. The comment not only infuriated Hart, it also played to the niche type of wrestling viewer, known as a smart mark, or smark for short. The etymological origin of this dates back to the carnival worker's term for anyone willing to pay them money as a mark. A smart mark was a viewer who's read what's known as the dirt sheets, factually dubious newsletters and magazines that claim to expose the backstage gossip in the wrestling industry. In an attempt to retaliate, Hart would later, on live television, call Michaels a, quote, homo due to his flamboyant style. Even though these promos were completely over the line and unprofessional, the blurring of the real-life backstage animosity and scripted drama completely enthralled fans. And it would forever influence all the promos that came afterward in the WWF, with wrestlers deliberately trying to blur the lines between reality and fiction. The truth is, while both men had gone too far, Michaels always seemed more comfortable than Brett did in engaging in this kind of way. Michaels was dedicated to trying to make wrestling characters seem more real and not so larger than life, as had been the standard of the past with Hulk Hogan and Macho Man Randy Savage. Brett had seemed more focused on trying to make the in-ring violence appear more real and less cartoony in stage than it had been in the past. But he wasn't ready to engage in this kind of personally bitter feud on live television, and he often seemed like he had been dragged into it by Michaels. It might appear as if the blame for the hatred between the two men should be equally shared, but it probably was much more Shawn Michaels' fault. During that era, Michaels was dealing with multiple addiction issues, and Michaels himself has stated in multiple interviews in the recent past that he was nearly impossible to deal with back then. Years later, after Shawn Michaels' first retirement from pro wrestling, he would meet the love of his life, get sober, and find God. He would later go about trying to make amends for his past behavior and his part in the screw job. Although Shawn has never disclosed this to me personally, I would imagine that Shawn probably thought that Brett was a bit too righteous, and as uh, the wrestlers would say, a mark for his own gimmick, like he really thought he was a, uh, you know, a, he a hero and role model. And uh, Sean at the time was maybe a little bit all about Sean. Now you could say, what's wrong with that? I mean, you're, you're in a viper's nest. You might as well be your own advocate. No one else is going to be for you. But um, they seem to be going along diverging paths. Sean is a very different type of person now. Sean is now a trainer uh, for WWE and uh, is supposedly, from what I've heard, very generous with his time and with his knowledge. 
If you spoke to either of them today, I think their philosophies in the current era in retirement would be far more aligned. Sean has matured. Bret Hart has certainly come to openly appreciate Sean's accomplishments, but this was at the height of their respective careers. And, uh, you know, they reached a, a, a stalemate where neither wanted to give an inch to the other. Ever heard of Stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of Stoicism with a lowercase s and not Stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is Stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. Okay, so back to that night in Montreal. It was to be Bret Hart's last match in the WWF. If you were a dedicated fan and reader of the Dirt Sheets, then you would have already known this. However, in a time before high-speed internet, the professional wrestling industry still clung to the final vestiges of the illusion of verisimilitude, known in the industry for unknown reasons as kayfabe. Chances were that most fans watching at home and in the arena were unaware before the match that this was Hart's final night with the company. So what actually played out? Let's take it from the perspective of a regular fan, only aware of the official storyline that had been playing out on WWF television for months beforehand. The fateful match began with the challenger, Shawn Michaels, strutting out to the ring in full swagger as his theme song, Sexy Boy, blared from the Molson Center Stadium loudspeaker. Michaels proceeded to wipe his butt with the Canadian flag, which he then dry-hummed and blew his nose with. So Hart responded by boldly marching into the ring, waving an even larger Canadian flag to deafening cheers of nationalistic pride, and the match got underway. It was fairly typical and routine for the two men who had completely revolutionized the art of storytelling through live choreographed violence, but 27 minutes into the match, Something happened that had never been witnessed before in the history of the WWF. And again, Michaels raking the face. Shawn Michaels scratched the eyes of Bret Hart, which was a common dirty move done by the bad guy, otherwise known in wrestling parlance as the heel. Hart, the good guy or babyface in this match, fell to the ground. And at this moment, Michaels picked up Hart's legs and put him into a figure four submission, a maneuver in which one wrestler violently twists his felled opponent's legs around his own. Look at this! This move happened to be the sharpshooter, Bret Hart's own signature finisher to make his opponents tap out. Of course, Hart would never tap out to his own finishing move, and what happened next would be dissected and analyzed over the next three decades 
like professional wrestling's own Zapruder film. A few moments after Hart was put in his own finishing move by Michaels, the referee called for the bell to be rung, signifying the match was over, despite the fact that Hart clearly never submitted. Hart tried to roll out of the submission maneuver, but it was too late. Michael's theme music came on over the speakers, which always signified the winner of the match. Cameras caught a glimpse of Hart's face, wearing an astonished but almost knowing look, as if he realized immediately what had happened. The next few moments would be less clear to audiences, unconcerned with the behind the scenes of the WWF. In one of the most perfectly executed moves in the entire career of the excellence of execution, Hart hawked a massive loogie and, with perfect aim and precision, spat it into the face of a WWF announcer. That announcer happened to be a man named Vince McMahon, the then secret owner of the company. Shawn Michaels spent little time basking in the glow of his fraudulent victory in a fraudulent sport. He grabbed the title belt and was quickly ushered away from the ring by WWF personnel as boos rained down from the hometown crowd, beginning to realize that their hero had gotten screwed. Bret Hart went on a rampage. He destroyed every piece of technical equipment he could get his hands on, which were mostly small television monitors. And then, in one final act of petulant defiance, he went back into the center of the ring and with his index finger, spelled out the letters W-C-W in the air. So what happened? And what did the letters WCW mean? In the late 90s, the WWF went through its most major existential threat at the hands of Ted Turner's competing wrestling company, World Championship Wrestling, a.k.a. WCW. Scheduled at the exact same time every Monday night, WCW Nitro was consistently getting more viewers than WWF Raw. Even though professional wrestling is more soap opera than sport, for some reason at that time, like any real sport, it seemed that there could only be one company. All challenges were challenges to the death, so to speak. So just as there is still only one major American football, baseball, hockey, and basketball league, it appeared the same would be true for professional wrestling. And the more established brand, WWF, was losing badly. WCW offered a more grounded and realistic approach to storytelling, ditching the WWF concept of wrestling characters being defined by outside professions, such as cop, lumberjack, soldier, Iranian general, or undertaker, and had their characters resemble men whose only job was to fight for a living. This more realistic approach appealed to older audiences, who made WCW Nitro the number one wrestling show for 83 straight weeks. This was the point at which all of that energy around the idea of kayfabe came out into the open. The fact of the fix, I know it's fake, but kill him, kill him anyway. It was the point at which that became explicitly part of the story that was being told rather than giving it its undercurrent. I think it was the point at which kayfabe stopped being a word that, you know, only circulated really behind the scenes. I mean, the first time I heard kayfabe, it was a fan, a 15-year-old fan. It wasn't a wrestler who said, oh, hey, you know, now that you've been around the ring such a long time, let us let you in on a secret. But by the end of the 90s, of course, kayfabe was a word everybody knew. WCW was also poaching many of the WWF's talent with higher salaries and more time off. And by the time they made an offer to Bret Hart, it was too good for the hitman to refuse. 
The problem, though, was at the time, Bret Hart was the champion of the WWF. If the company's champion were to leave for a rival company, still as its champion, that would essentially be the death blow for WWF. The WCW could brag that under its employ was the still reigning and unbeaten WWF champion. Hart, who could be considered the ultimate professional, would of course willingly lose the title before he exited the company. There was one major problem, though. WWF owner Vince McMahon was in charge of all creative decisions. And the man he wanted Brett to lose the title to was his mortal enemy, on screen and off. One of the most fascinating aspects of professional wrestling is that two men who hate each other in real life can be tasked to hate each other on television and pretend to fight one another. Yet, while they pretend to kill one another, their main objective is to keep each other perfectly safe. This time, though, it was too much for Brett to maintain any illusions. Maybe he saw losing his title fairly to Shawn Michaels as the death of his hitman character and an end to his credibility and marketability as he transitioned to a new company. There, he would mostly inhabit his same hitman character audiences knew him as in the WWF. Or maybe he just hated Shawn Michaels so much that he couldn't stomach the idea of losing to him in front of his home crowd on live television. Brett's entire family was in the wrestling business, including his brother Owen and his brother-in-law Jim, whom he started with as a tag team wrestler. But Brett was the star. He made the Hart name synonymous with professional wrestling. In his mind, losing to Michaels, quote unquote, clean, meaning fairly, would be, in his own words, quote, putting a bullet in the hitman character's head. Now from here on out, things get even murkier. But there are some interesting materials that obsessed fans have used to dig deeper. At the time of the event, Bret Hart was having a documentary made about himself called Wrestling with Shadows. In the documentary, Bret can be seen discussing solutions to the problem of his departure with Vince McMahon. They seemingly decide on something called a schmaz, meaning that at some point in the match, all of Shawn Michaels' heel friends would come out into the ring to beat up Hart. This would be followed by Hart's wrestling family members doing the same to Michaels. The match would end in a giant fight between multiple people, be declared null, and Bret Hart could vacate the company and the title without having officially lost it to Michaels. But why didn't this happen? There are multiple theories. One of them being that McMahon, secretly dissatisfied with this solution, met with Michaels privately and told him what the real finish of the match would be, which was just what was seen on television. In unused footage later released, McMahon can be seen yelling to the ref to, quote, ring the bell as soon as Michaels got Hart into the sharpshooter. Hart, obviously aware of McMahon's role in the decision, first spits on him. Then later that evening, as Hart was changing out of his ring gear, McMahon came to explain his decision. With his documentary camera crew waiting just outside the room, Hart purportedly and admittedly punched his boss in the face. While there is no footage of the uppercut to Vince's left eye, there is footage of McMahon walking out of the locker room sporting a huge welt. More on this later. For the audience, it was the first time that Vince McMahon stepped out of his official ring announcer role and stepped into his behind-the-scenes, but never on television, owner of the company role. Of course, this period was when Vince McMahon finally came out and in order to, you know, evade taxes mostly and um, to get himself away from the kinds of oversight that remaining an athletic competition was giving him grief in the steroid era. Vince came out and said it's sports entertainment. 
it's interesting that the realist impulse or the realist trend really took off from that point. And Brett and Sean seem to straddle that period by being not quite cartoonish, but not not cartoonish any longer either. And of course, at that point, Vince steps up and he becomes Mr. McMahon and he does his heel turn, which is absolutely brilliant. Vince as a heel is an absolutely brilliant series of performances over the next 10 years. And what's disturbing about the event is all of a sudden we stopped seeing the wrestlers as just showmen. And all of a sudden we started thinking about these guys as workers, as people who were employed in perhaps suboptimal, still suboptimal conditions, who were essentially putting their bodies on the line to create this show that we all applauded. Uh, We called it a work without understanding that it was actually work. We called it doing a job without seeing the the equivalence to our own work conditions in quite that explicit way or in the way that really pointed to the corruption in that employer-employee kind of way. A week later, with Bret Hart officially out of the company, McMahon sat down for an interview with fellow announcer Jim Ross on the WWF Live Network show, Monday Night Raw. His welt was now a deep black and purple, and he famously declared... Some would say, I screwed Bret Hart. Bret Hart would definitely tell you, I screwed him. I'll look at it from a different standpoint. I'll look at it from the standpoint of the referee did not screw Bret Hart. Shawn Michaels certainly did not screw Bret Hart. Nor did Vince McMahon screw Bret Hart. I truly believe that Bret Hart screwed Bret Hart. And he can look in the mirror and know that. Thus, the most dastardly villain in the history of professional wrestling was born. Evil company owner, Mr. McMahon, his secret now revealed. If Bret Hart left the company with the hardest of feelings and the worst of ill wishes on his former colleagues, it would ironically be the Montreal Screwjob that would save the WWF in the Monday Night Wars. The character of evil company owner, Mr. McMahon, who screwed beloved hero Bret Hart, would lead to the creation of quite possibly the most popular wrestler of all time. That's right. That's beer-chugging, Texas everyman anti-hero, Stone Cold Steve Austin, who would live out every working stiff's dreams and continuously torture his boss for over two years. I drank a beer. I drank another beer. Three beers. Four beers. Five beers. Six beers. Seven beers. Eight beers. Nine beers. And a Bloody May. No, I'm not drunk yet. I'm just getting started. What? This proved to be television too compelling for any wrestling fan to miss. And the WWF began to regain its foothold in the ratings over the WCW until the WCW was on the verge of bankruptcy and officially purchased by Vince McMahon in 2001. A year after the Montreal Screwjob, Shawn Michaels, now heavily addicted to painkillers, would lose his title rather unceremoniously to Steve Austin and not return to professional wrestling for four years. During that time, he would get off the pills and become a born-again Christian. As for Bret Hart, He later admitted that going to the WCW was the biggest mistake of his career. The writing team at the new company seemingly had no idea what to do with the international star and wrestling legend. 
And not long into his time in the company, a mistimed kick from a fellow wrestler to his head resulted in an injury that prematurely ended his wrestling career. The Montreal Screwjob was essentially the first time that fans of professional wrestling got to see something truly unplanned and unexpected happen on a live TV program that was supposed to be scripted. Or was it? Remember those 10 wrestling fans and the 10 different opinions on the Screwjob mentioned at the beginning? Well, there are many fans and even wrestlers who believe that the entire thing was a work, which, if we remember our pro wrestling terms by this point, means planned. Let's review the evidence. Why does the screw job happen 27 minutes into the match when a typical pay-per-view main event match takes 30 minutes? If the plan was for a giant fight between multiple wrestlers ending in a no contest, wouldn't Brett have become curious why they hadn't come out yet? Also, what better way to leave the character's credibility intact than by getting screwed over by his boss and sworn nemesis? And what about the uppercut to Vince McMahon and the ensuing black eye? Why did Bret Hart's camera crew decide this one time not to be in the locker room during Vince's attempt to explain things to Bret? After all, they were there just 10 minutes earlier to see Shawn Michaels vigorously defend his ignorance of the screwjob to Bret. Could it be that by not being in the locker room for the reported uppercut to the eye, it gave a makeup team just enough time to create the welt on Vince's face as he walked out looking dazed? This theory is probably false. Bret Hart and everyone involved have sworn the incident was a shoot. But if it was all planned, it would be one of the greatest pranks ever pulled off in broadcasting and on the public, ranking up there with Orson Welles' infamous radio broadcast of War of the Worlds, convincing thousands of Americans that they were being invaded by intergalactic aliens. Whatever the truth, part of the fun of wrestling is trying to decide which moments are actually unplanned. That's true, especially in the modern era, where the pretense of being real has been completely dropped to the point that the WWF, now known as the WWE, openly admits that it's all scripted. Professional wrestling now seems more intertwined with the world of reality television, Twitter, and even global pandemics, where there are people always trying to figure out what is real and what is staged. Even the last president of the United States of America was once on the receiving end of a stone-cold stunner. And while in the last two decades, professional wrestling has diminished in popularity from the era of Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart, for better or for worse, it's hard not to notice its influence and theirs in various aspects of American culture. And the result is a country of millions of Americans trying to determine what's real, what's scripted, and most importantly, not be a mark. You know, the Montreal Screwjob came about during a period when fans were suddenly clued into the inner workings of the business on the internet. Had it occurred 10 years earlier, I don't think it would have resonated in the same way. But now every single person who watched that show could get online and speculate about it. And every guy backstage, whether they were on Brett's side or on Sean's side, could reach out to the newsletters and the websites and, you know, give their opinions on it. And so the community of the wrestling community was all involved in the gossip. And to this day, the gossip persists because here we are talking about it now. 
And, you know, their contributions are vast. And a lot of the wrestlers today, you know, there's a lot of Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels in what you see executed today. Beef is a production of Next Chapter Podcasts. This episode was written by James Levine with help from Ben Austin Docampo and Pete Musto, who also edited this episode. Our executive producer is show creator Jeremiah Tittle. Don't forget to subscribe to, rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us get the word out. I'm Bridget Todd. Thanks for listening to Beef. And remember to stay petty. Who knows how far it'll take you. Next Chapter Podcasts.